You have one unheard message. Hi, I was calling Current, the influencer marketing platform, but I think I just got redirected to a bunch of people listening to a podcast. Well, anyways, I was calling Current because I was told they could help get my brand set up on TikTok Shop and even build out an affiliate program of content creators promoting my brand and even have those content creators go on live streams and promote my product there. Wow, I could really use Current. I also heard that the brands they work with are making millions in sales. I guess I'll just go to their website at current.tech. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot-button Internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on Internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning. This is Bennett Kelly, and welcome to Cyber Law and Business Report, broadcast live from the Internet Law Center here in the heart of Silicon Beach, downtown Santa Monica. We're with David Reif, the writer of the new book, The Reproach of Hunger, Food, Justice, and Money in the 21st Century. And it kind of posits a, a difficult question. Malthus long ago warned us that population may someday far exceed our ability to feed it. Whereas at the same time, we now have people um, from the Zero Hunger and the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Bono's um, Zero Group, that tell us that um, hunger and poverty may soon be eliminated. Mr. Reif takes us through um, the, kind of those competing scenarios and uh, and suggests that you know, the answer may not entirely be here yet, um, but we can get there. And so, David, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. And um, so, you, basically, on on the scale of um, a Malthusian pessimism and I guess Bono uh, optimism, where, where do you place yourself on in the fight against hunger? Well, I'm I'm temperamentally a bit pessimistic. I don't know if the pessimism in question is Malthusian or not, but. Um, because in fairness, Malthus has been wrong so far. I mean, right. at the beginning of the 19th century, Malthus said, uh, predicted that uh, whereas population could rise uh, exponentially, uh, geometrically rather, uh, food uh, production could only rise arithmetically. So you're a dif- difference between multiplying population and adding food. And he predicted widespread salmon if, uh, as a result of, of this fact, inevitably. And of course, so far at least, on the contrary, there have been fewer famines. And most famines in our time, in the second half of the 20th century and what you've had so far of the 21st, these are political famines. These aren't famines because of mainly caused by drought or by crop failure. They're caused by politics. So, for example, the worst part of world for famine at the moment is not, you know, with the possible exception of ISIS, the worst government in the world. Um, so, so Malthus has been wrong so far, but as I say in my books, uh, Malthus only has to be right once for it to happen. So the question is, 
I mean, the question I pose in this book is whether uh, the technology solution, the technologically driven solution that people like Bill and Melinda Gates and to some extent the World Bank and other institutions put forward, which is that we'll find technical fixes uh, and we'll marry that to sound business practices, they would say. Uh, and we'll, we'll be able to accommodate, we'll be able to feed even the vastly increased number of people that are going to live on this earth in the next 30 years. I mean, we, there are 7 billion people today, and there'll be 9 billion by 2050, short of the asteroid hitting. Um, you know, so either, so the question that becomes, will, you know, will there be enough food for these people? And the Gates people and Bono and Folks like that, Bob Geldof, folks like that. They all believe that even if we don't have the technology now, we soon will. I'm a lot more skeptical because I frankly don't see hunger as principally a problem of supply. Uh, I see it principally as a problem of access, which is a whole other game. And, and access driven by? Well, I mean, by access, uh, the, the, uh, some of your listeners be familiar with the great Indian economist Amartya Sen. And he won the Nobel Prize in economics 20 years ago, et cetera, et cetera. And he won it largely for work uh, on, for at least in part, for the work he did on, it, on the Great Famine in Bengal in, in, um, in uh, 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 eastern India in um, uh, the mid-40s during the Second World War, 1942-43. And what he showed was that uh, the people who died didn't die because there was no food. They died because basically they were priced out of the market. They and they couldn't find it, and people were hoarding. And food was being diverted for other political reasons. India, of course, was still a British colony in those days. Britain was fighting a world war and diverting food supplies to troops, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, you know, imagine for the sake of argument, maybe one way to describe this. Let's say we could produce. Uh, three times as much food as we do now. I mean, imagine we have some fantastic technology. I don't have, I've, I'm, I always annoy people with this, but I don't really have a strong opinion on GMOs one way or the other because I don't feel I have science in my head to, to have the right to make a judgment. But for whatever reason, let's say we, we increase production. Will people be able to afford this food? And will we be able to grow it in the places where it's needed? After all, there's no short, I mean, if we upped food production in the United States, which we probably could do, would you know how would that help people in Sub-Saharan Africa if they don't have access to it or they can't afford it? Right. Uh, you know, you would have a, a, a figure. It would look like the world had increased food production by X, but that increase wouldn't help the people. Wouldn't get to the people where it was needed, and that's you know that's that's the problem in a nutshell. And then the question is: Is your solution? largely a technological one, or as some of the people who I write about in this book think, is it really a question, is it a, is it a supply problem, as the critics of this would say, or is it a justice problem? Is it the inequality of the world that causes food shortages or the cause of people not to have enough to eat? And that, that's the real debate. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, I, I want to be very clear. I'm very critical of the technological view, but I think the people who espouse it uh, are entirely sincere and, and, you know, mean to, 
every bit the right thing. I mean, my book, for example, is extremely critical of Bill Gates, but I mean, if you compare Bill Gates to, say, Larry Ellison, the founder of Oracle, who certainly, publicly at least, there's no record of him having any charitable or philanthropic interests. I mean, even if I think Bill Gates is mistaken, I, I certainly think that he's, um, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's trying to do something. And the question is whether what he's trying to do is, is the best thing that could be done or whether we have to think about the problem differently. Now, one thing you discuss a lot in your book is is the so-called green revolution, and you know, I'm sure our readers, I'm, well, many of our readers may not be familiar with that. Could you talk about that for a minute? Sure. Yeah, in the 1940s, 30s, and 40s, American a bunch of American scientists, largely supported by the Rockefeller Foundation, that uh, which was you know the, the sort of 800 pound gorilla of philanthropy in those days, sort of right, the Gates Foundation. Uh, in health and in agriculture is today, or maybe the Soros Foundation, George Soros' foundation is in more political uh, democracy building sorts of activity. Anyway, they sponsored these scientists who, who led by men, both Norman Borlaugs, who eventually also won the Nobel Prize and bring the great prize in food science is now made. And Borlaug basically developed new strains of food staples. And this allowed vast increases in production. And it was hailed at the time, literally, as a revolution, as a transformation of how agriculture could be done and, and, and what kind of um, uh, production, what kind of yields one could expect, because the, the, the germplasm, the seeds that Warlock was uh, pioneering just were much, much more productive. And, uh, you know, a lot of people think that in India, for example, in the 1950s, where the threat of famine existed, that the Green Revolution saved a lot of lives. The debate about the Green Revolution, I, I think that's incontrovertible. I'm not, I don't think there's any question of that. The problem is whether it was sustainable, because as as ecologists would point out, you know, what they call agroecologists, I mean, people are interested precisely in ecological farming. What they would say to you is, but, you know, it required too much fertilizer, it was too environmentally destructive, it used too much water, and in the end, although it did very good things in its time, it wasn't sustainable. So then the debate becomes... Uh, can we make a second green revolution? The phrase Bill Gates uses a lot, um, in which you would, uh, you know, have all the benefits of the first green revolution, but without all the environmental costs. And on that, you know, the jury's still out. What do you think would, would make that successful? Well, this, we're back to the, you know, question of technology again. If you believe that there are basically technological fixes to everything. And more importantly, if you believe that technology is the key, is the way, you know, is the, at the center of things, then there's no reason why a second green revolution uh, shouldn't take place. But the, if you believe, in contrast to some of the critics of this view do, that actually, uh, again, the problem isn't production. The problem is, above all, distribution and access, then just producing more isn't going to help. 
uh, you can make peasants much more productive, but that doesn't mean they might, you know, the individual farmers might make more money, and that's not a small thing, don't get me wrong. But it's not going to help feed people in places, for example, where there's just no money. I mean, take uh, Syria. I mean, imagine for the sake of argument that the war ended tomorrow. Okay. Where do people get money to pay for food? You could have all, you could, you could, unless you're going to give it away for free, you're going to have tremendous problems of malnutrition in Syria in the next few years because people are just not going to have the cash to pay for it. And that, that's, you know, that's a very extreme, because it's so extreme, perhaps, somewhat unfair example of what the problem is. And and so the problem of hunger is inextricably linked to the the problem of politics and um, disruption. Yeah, I, that's my that's a position I actually take in the book. That my objection to you know the what I call the techno utopian view of the world, and you know again I want to emphasize it. This is a view that's shared by incredibly serious people with. Know, who, who are dedicated many cases their lives to these questions and you know could be having a much nicer life uh, making a lot more money if they were doing something else um, so I, I'm not I, I, I in no way mean you know, any personal disrespect but I think they're mistaken so it seems that the um the problem of hunger is inextricably linked to the, the problem of you know, politi- political disruption and, and political chaos yeah, well, that's my view. I mean, uh, that, that's why I'm finally very critical of Gates and of, of the World Bank view and basically the mainstream view, which, again, I want to emphasize is a view held by a lot of incredibly distinguished people, many, many, many incredibly dedicated people, all of whom are trying to make the world a better place. I don't, I really don't think this is a question of, uh, of uh, good guys and bad guys here. But it is a question of whether who's right and who's wrong. And I, my view is that depoliticizing this issue of the issue of feeding people, of, of feeding the nine billion, which is a kind of catchphrase that people in the world now use, the nine billion people will be here by very soon, 30 years. Uh, um, that, that there, there's just a, fundamental political problem and that when I listen to this mainstream view to view expressed at Gates and all these other institutions that I mentioned what I hear is Francis Fukuyama I hear the end of history you know that you'll remember that famous book from the 80s yeah a politics professor in, in Washington wrote it in the 90s saying basically we, we knew what society, a successful society only has one form. It's a kind of liberal capitalist, uh, democratic society. That's the only kind of society that can be successful over the long term. And that in that sense, all the historical debates really had come to their conclusion. History had ended in his phrase. The book, you'll recall, is, is actually called The End of History. Right. Now, I, I, my view, for what it's worth, is that this uh, isn't true, and that the mistake of what I, these 
people in this food debate who I consider to be techno-utopian, uh, is that, you know, we don't actually agree on what good societies are. I mean, it, even think of something as awful as Islamic State, as Daesh. I mean, Daesh is, a, you know, one of the most monstrous phenomena of recent history. But a lot of people, let's, let's be clear about it, are very drawn to it. If there was this great agreement about everything, uh, that wouldn't be happening. Right. Uh, instead, you know, people, you know, why, why does it, you know, think of it, a Somali refugee comes to Minnesota and you'd think we just want to have a life, you know, in the U.S. and instead wants to go back to Somalia or to Iraq or Syria to fight for Daesh. Ideas, this idea that this, this, Fukuyama's idea that we all agree. Maybe it would it would be great if it were true, but I, I really think history shows every day how mistaken his view was. And I think about you know when you look at the technological, largely technological and business driven solution to the food crisis that again people like Gates Foundation propose, what you get is people who fundamentally see this. As a, a problem, we have this problem. It's an engine. In effect, it's you know, it's not surprising. Bill Gates was a brilliant engineer, and he still right. thinks like an engineer. You know, he said this many times, talking about his foundation's work. You know, you get the best brains together, and you come up. You know, you brainstorm, and you come up with a solution, and you give money to the right scientists and the right anthropologists and everywhere else along that particular. Uh, you know, all those. Disciplines, specialties, uh, academic, business, scientific, uh, political. I mean, political in the sense of you know, government. And then they come up with a solution, and then you implement the solution. But again, that assumes that we all agree on what kind of society we want. And I just don't believe those states are over. And then, if I can, you know, add to this, on the one hand when people talk about these solutions, you know, they talk as if they're just, as I say, almost engineering problems, put our mind to it. But on the other hand, the, you know, we're supposed to be very optimistic about the future at a moment when inequality is getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And uh, it's, it's, I find that very hard to reconcile. If things are so good, or, or about to be so good, which is kind of official line of the development world, then why are uh, why is inequality growing first pretty much everywhere in the world? You're listening to Cyberlong Business Report only on webmasterradio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Celebrating the best in online advertising. The Web Marketing Association presents the 14th Annual Internet Advertising Competition Awards. Submit your banner ads, email ads, rich media, online newsletters, websites, and social media campaigns now by going to iacaward.org. Deadline for entries is February 15th, 2016. All winners will have their entry highlighted on the Internet Advertising Competition website, as well as receive a handsome trophy to display or a personalized certificate of achievement. Be honored among your online advertising peers by submitting your entry into the Web Marketing Association's 
14th Annual Internet Advertising Competition Awards. Submit your entry today at IACAward.org. That's IACAward.org. Whether you are an online business or domain name investor, you need access to the best names. With over 270 million domains already registered, finding the right names at the best price requires a great wingman. Namejet.com puts you in the pilot seat by giving you fast and unparalleled access to some of the best premium and expired domain names on earth. As the number one domain name auction platform, Namejet.com is the best place to find domains for your business or investment. So light the afterburners to the domain name aftermarket and fly over to Namejet.com at box speed to get great domains today. Namejet.com. Johnson, what's this mantis I keep hearing about? Do we need to call an exterminator? No, sir. Moby Mantis is our new SMS marketing tool. SM what? SMS. Text messaging. Moby Mantis lets us communicate directly with our customers in real time. We can send promos, coupons. It even lets our customers market for us by sharing offers with their friends online. It's been great for business. Hmm. Sounds expensive. Actually, I sign us up for an extended free trial. It hasn't cost us a dime. Good work, Johnson. I guess the only thing we'll be exterminating is the competition. To get your free extended trial of Moby Mantis, text RADIO to 21691. That's RADIO to 21691 for Moby Mantis. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. We're with David Reif, the writer of the new book, The Reproach of Hunger, Food, Justice, and Money in the 21st Century. It seems that our our approach in the developing world has often started from a premise that they just need to be more like us. And and I'm mindful of, uh, you know, I I used to get to to work really early in the morning when I lived in Washington. And sometimes I would see Robert McNamara. Um, and he had this very weird gait somewhere between a fast walk and a jog. And which it just seems to epitomize Robert McNamara since he was always rushing into things, not necessarily fully understanding them. And, um, you know, in his, not only just with his experience in Vietnam, but as his leader of the World Bank with the idea that we just need to, um, develop the, um, Africa and other parts of the world by giving them these big white elephant projects so they can have the same industrial infrastructure as the West, even if they couldn't support it. Um, and, and so he, he just comes to mind as kind of the exemplar of our past mis, misguided approaches towards, you know, eradicating poverty. Well, absolutely. I mean, the development world's record isn't very good. Uh, in the sense that if you look at the history of the idea of development, it really starts in its modern form with a speech given by President Truman uh, in the late 40s. You'll see that there have been one enthusiasm after the other. I once heard an essay from the New York Review of Books in which I said, you know, if the development community were a person, you would say that that person had been victim and his or her life of really extraordinarily uh, extraordinary mood swings, <laughs> so that you have, if you will, a, you know, a world in which, you know, we have the absolute solution. It's industrialization. That was back to America. Right. Uh, you know, 
day. It was, you know, we're going to build enormous dams and power projects and massive highways. And then, you know, they look at that, and it turns out it doesn't work. And so, you know, they, they scratch that, and then it becomes, I don't know, small farmers or whatever. I mean, it, oh, micro lending it goes or... one enthusiasm, and then they, they sort of repudiate it. It, it, there's something a little Soviet about it all, you know. There's, there's, there's a plan, and then the plan doesn't work, so we make another plan. Pretend the other plan, the first plan hadn't happened the way it happened, particularly in agriculture and play industry too in the old Soviet Union. But you're listening to see young to remember all that. But, but, um, so, you know, my view is one should be much more cautious, and I find that the, the current enthusiasm for, business-led development, just as suspect as the others. I mean, there, there's probably truth in all of them. I mean, but but their development thinking tends to be silver bullet thinking, if you like. It, right. uh, there's a eureka moment, and then you you and you you do. But uh, I mean, particularly if I'm right, and that there are fundamental political issues at play, and those are never going to be resolved the way a scientific question is resolved. I mean, as you know, as well as I do, better. You know, there's no, uh, uh, it's, it's like art. I may think Michelangelo is a better painter than Art Crumb, but I can't prove it scientifically. Right. And that's the difference. It's not that claim, you know, most people who love art would think that was an idiotic claim, but, but, you know, there's no proof the way there might be in chemistry uh, that that could show why it's false. That's why when you teach, you know, particularly freshmen and sophomores in college, will always sort of it, there's always going to be one kind of person there who you know wants to ask you why you know why Hitler was a bad man since he was doing the right thing according to his lights. I mean, you, I mean, and that's a ridiculous question. Yet, unlike uh, a scientific question, it can't be answered with a proof. And right. that, that, I think, is what's wrong, coming back to Earth here, uh, for uh, the, you know, for, for thinking of the food crisis as fundamentally a technical problem, and that questions of justice, questions of equality and inequality, questions of war and peace are all somehow uh, secondary ones. And I think it to be honest, I think it's the opposite. Well, I mean, there are some things you can measure, though, and um, you know, and, and to, to cite a cause of another famous engineer, um, Jimmy Carter. I mean, we are making great progress, for example, in eliminating river blindness, and you know, we may someday eradicate malaria. You know, all of those things that you can measure and and. and demonstrate which actually you all are causes of poverty in, in those regions and um so i mean there is cause for hope in some of those things those indicia well, there's absolutely cause for hope i mean i don't I'm, I'm sorry the there's plenty of cause for hope. look there's one great event that took place in the 20th century you know uh, people like me you know i spent a long time as a war correspondent in the balkans in africa and Iraq and Afghanistan, et cetera. So I may have a particularly joint view of the world, but I always when I try to think seriously about something. I often sort of ask myself, you know, is it just your your sort of melancholy disposition after all these years watching people kill each other? 
uh, that's causing you to be so pessimistic, and 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 that's a danger. I mean, although I I would insist that people who are optimistic should should you know ask themselves the same thing or a different form of it and say, am I optimistic because there's really cause for optimism or just because I think it's a good thing to be optimistic, it's the moral thing to do, the right thing to do, which, you know, would be, if you concluded that, you might have to rethink. But anyway, look, there's plenty of good news. I'll tell you an obvious piece of good news, which you'll be aware of, which is that largely speaking, we've stopped famine. Now, are there still a few in North Korea, as I mentioned before, uh, the Horn of Africa, uh, some of the Sahelian countries, you know, the Sahara countries in the south of North Africa, Niger, places like that? Um, there are. But there are much famines, even the worst famines today, are much less lethal than they were even 30 years ago. Forget about it. 60 or 100 years ago. And we've, there's no particular reason to think absent, you know, total climate change disaster that we're going to go back to the age of famine. And yet, again, if one wants to talk about progress and some good news, the fact is that for all of human history, uh, humankind has been, uh, you know, bedeviled, uh, uh, suffered from these terrible famines. And now there are very few of them. And that's partly also, I mean, here, if I channel my inner Bill Gates, I'd say that's also because of technology. Technologies of emergency feeding. There's something called plumpy nuts, which is a compound. It's kind of taste, but it's so highly caloric and nutritious that people on the, you know, who really would have died 30, 40 years ago, if they're fed this stuff in time, they survive. So, I mean, there is a piece of good news, and, and one must, you know, I don't think one should just treat optimism as if it were a moral virtue, and in part, my book is an argument against that position, which I think, frankly, is too common, especially in my life, among Americans, who we, we, we love optimism, and we, we sort of think being virtuous and being optimistic are one and the same. But, you know, you don't want to be Cassandra either, unless there's real reason to be. And I suppose I, you know, the one thing I would say is, unless we do something about climate change, then the optimists are going to be proven wrong. Because it's one thing to deal with the problems that now face us in the world. But if, you know, if the seas rise and the temperatures, and they say in some of the, the uh, Saudi Arabia, for example, it's a very underpopulated place, but still, uh, that it'll be 50 degrees Celsius for weeks and weeks at a time in the summer. I mean, you can't live in that. You certainly can't be productive in that. You certainly couldn't farm in that. And, you know, these are the, the, the that's why this Paris conference that's going on now about climate change is so important. Whether we and the Chinese and the Russians and the Brazilians and the other major players can, can make a deal or not at that as they say, is above my pay grade, but I, I sure hope they can. If, if they don't, I think the pessimists are going to be proven right in space. Thank you for your discussion of the book, The Reproach of Hunger. Thank you for your time. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. 
Hey, this is Danny Sullivan to talk to you about Bruce Clay Incorporated. They've made Inc. Magazine's list of growing private businesses and have exhibited and sponsored at my conferences since the very beginning. You've seen their search engine relationship chart or you've read their SEO code of ethics. So you know their SEO experts, but did you know they can help you with PBC, web analytics, web design, marketing strategy, promotion, and branding? Yep, get everything you need for success in the online marketplace. You can check it out from the professionals at Bruce Clay Incorporated. For over 10 years with offices worldwide, they've got the answers you need. Check them out today at BruceClay.com. Reinventing keyword research, simplifying campaign optimization, redefining competitive analysis, SpyFu brings you an entirely new way to find the most profitable keywords for your SEO and PPC campaigns. New tools, new data, and a brand new look. We've streamlined SpyFu so that you can optimize your search engine marketing more efficiently, more accurately, and more intuitively. Visit SpyFu.com, that's S-P-Y-F-U.com, and start downloading your competitors' keywords now. Try it free. Introducing Rumble, the smart mobile management system, the first end-to-end mobile platform where you can make real-time app modifications from a point-and-click dashboard. Want to change the design of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the ad map of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Want to change the content mix of your app? Point-click, and it's live in real-time. Power your mobile business with Rumble. Are you ready to rumble? Visit www.rumble.me. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on webmasterradio.fm. The following is an encore segment of Cyber Law and Business Report. And we're back, and we have Delphine with us. Delphine, are you there? Hi, how are you? Thank you for coming back to the show. Um, Delphine is the Washington Director for... um, Reporters Without Borders, and it's uh, an international organization. Are you affiliated with Doctors Without Borders? Uh, Actually, uh, people ask me the question often. So we are not. We are kind of cuisine, I guess, because Doctors Without Borders and Reporters Without Borders are both French organizations, and they were created at the same time. And actually, there's a small story uh, who linked each other. Actually, when Doctors Without Borders was created and when... um, they went to Africa to help uh, different uh, countries to fight against famine. The founder of Doctors Without Borders were actually enraged by that there was no uh, press coverage of what was happening in Africa. And in a sense, we were created to answer that call because we, and it's not just by sending Western journalists when there is a crisis, but by helping local journalists to do their job every day in a crazy situation and in authoritarian regime. And that's our mission, to help uh, journalists all over the world to do their work. Now, Doctors Without Borders has won the Nobel Prize. Yes. Right. Okay. So one day um, we will win it, too. <laughs> and I, and I, I'm, quite, I'm sure that is a possibility, um, particularly in light of your, your recent work and one thing that um, your organization has done, as you mentioned, is have, have an annual Enemies of the Internet. And what makes someone an enemy of the Internet? So um, 
what we qualify in our report as an enemy of the Internet was, first of all, the state which were uh, monitoring uh, online activity, but also filtering uh, internet connection in their own countries. So since many years, we were publishing list of countries which were, uh, um, as we say, enemies of the internet. But this year, for the first time, we also uh, focus on five states which are conducting systematic online surveillance that results in serious human rights violations, like Syria, China, Iran, Bahrain, and Vietnam. But also for the first time, as I said, we also focus on the five companies that would qualify uh, enemies of the Internet because uh, we consider that actually the companies who are selling products to authoritarian governments um, to commit violation of human rights and are actually like kind of digital mercenaries. And in this report, we highlight Gamma, Trovicor, Hacking Team, Amazis, and Blue Coat, who are all Western companies, American, French, Italian, British. And we consider that when a company is selling filtering software or monitoring software to Libya, to Syria, or to Iran, they have to be... Uh, taken responsible, accountable for the tools, the arms they are giving to these governments who are known to violate human rights. Now, we've, we actually had someone on um, a couple of weeks ago to talk about Blue Coat. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they, did, they did some research and, 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 and kind of documented some of what you were talking about. But just to make clear... Uh, technology itself is neutral. Te- technology yes. doesn't do anything bad or good unless you know yes. it, it has uses that can be bad or good. And mm-hmm. you know, so the in highlighting you know, these companies that offer this technology, it's the the crime isn't the technology; it, it's who they're getting in bed with. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The technology is neutral, and uh, filtering or monitoring internet can be useful and uh, should be uh, useful in many cases to uh, try to track a pedophile or terrorist. We completely understand that, but you, uh, we have also to to adapt um, our behavior when we are talking about governments who are known to arrest their dissidents, their opposants, and when a company is giving the tool to a, a country like Iran or Syria or Libya to monitor the online activities, to monitor the Skype conversation, to monitor the Gmail exchange, uh, we the companies have to adapt their behavior to this uh, local uh, situation and to understand that the consequences of selling monitoring software like that will have huge consequences in human rights uh, regard. Now, of the five companies you named, have any of them responded to their inclusion in the report? Uh, actually, we are still waiting uh, to hear from the companies, and there's two companies that we we cannot have uh, communication with them right now because we filed a complaint against them at the OECD level for the technology they sold to Bahrain. 
And the OECD um, is the Organization of Economic Cooperation Development. It's a, a kind of a consortium of the leading um, Western developed nations. Yes. Uh, we hope that first initiative, uh, this legal initiative, uh, could uh, bring attention to, to this uh, monitoring market, but also could un- encourage um, Western governments to adopt legislation to control more the export of uh, digital arms. Actually, the U.S. and uh, the European Union already um, forbid the export of this software to Iran and to Syria, and we hope that they can extend this export control to other countries. And um, actually, we we advocate for European governments to take an harmonized approach to control the export of surveillance technology. And also, we encourage the Obama administration to adopt legislation uh, like the Global Online Freedom Act or more the technology sold by American uh, companies. In the Global Online Freedom Act, that's the act that's been introduced practically every Congress for about 10 years now by um, Representative Chris Smith from New Jersey. And um, yes. I don't know if it's been offered yet this year or not. But um, uh, It's still a proposition, uh, and as you said, it's uh, it's hard to be adopted. <laughs> and uh, the, even if uh, the hopes are thinner and thinner, I think we have to continue to, to push for the controls of export uh, of surveillance software. And, and is that a matter of not necessarily having the laws in place because they are in place, which is the matter of enforcing them? Sorry, I, I, could you repeat your question? Sure. Um, you, you said you, your focus now, given that legislation may not be likely, but your focus is now more on getting uh, countries to use export controls to, to restrict um, this type of technology from getting in the wrong hands. And so is it your view that the, the, the legal framework is just exists, it's just a matter of governments enforcing the law? I'm sorry, I hear you uh, badly. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I guess the question is, is um, you, you, you're, you're, you're focusing and you're trying to get governments to um, enforce uh, their export control laws or to apply export control laws to prevent the technology from getting in countries like Syria or Bahrain, right? Yes. And and so is it your view that the, the law is already the, the the law already prohibits this conduct or do you need more laws to strengthen it? We need more laws to to strengthen that control and because we we want that um, monitoring software could be considered as real arms, real um tools which could hurt people and so that's why we are pushing because for the moment there's no no control at all on uh, how um, uh, authoritarian regime or dictatorship can have access to this technology that they use to arrest journalists and citizens journalists so yes we are, we are advocating for more uh, legislation to control this export it's an amazing, you know, just kind of playing um, in my head your, your, your response. And um, what's what's interesting is that if you had said the same thing maybe 15 years ago, 
that um, you know we need to treat software as a weapon. I, I think people would have been astounded by it. But you know now you know it, people are realizing that you know with cyber war and all these other aspects that this is definitely as can be as much a weapon as anything else. Yeah. And I think the news are bringing us every day new cases, which uh, uh, makes this cyber war more real. There was the New York Times hacking um, in the beginning of the year. But I can give you many examples. I can give you the example of a, um, a Syrian activist who was uh, arrested end of um, 2011, Karim Temur. And when he was um, interrogated, actually he was shown around 1,000 pages of transcripts of all his Skype conversation and exchange of documents with wow. all his contacts. That's just an example of what the Syrian government is able to do right now. And actually, it's not an hazard if at the beginning of the uprising in Syria in February 2011, after years of blocking Skype, Facebook, and Twitter, the Syrian government gave access again to uh, the Syrian population to this website because they wanted them to use them because they were able to monitor what was happening on Facebook and Twitter. So for the Syrian government to give access to social networks during the uprising was the best way to know what the young population, what the opposite, what the dissidents were doing. It's interesting, so, yeah, the, yeah the, the whole concept of that there's some book hide in plain sight, where they want, you know, this is the opposite, they, they want you to come out so they can watch you. Mm-hmm. Now that's, that's, I think, really striking, and uh, so when uh, actually you have to be careful if if you are in Iran or in Syria or in Bahrain, and for many months a website was blocked, and if suddenly, oh, I can access it, it's not an hazard, or you have to understand what what it means. Right. Be careful what you wish for; you might get it, and then it'll be monitored. Um, now, this is obviously very important stuff, but I want to talk. There's certain hopeful things that I've seen that you guys have posted, and one is it appears that you guys are somehow hopeful about um, a Burmese spring, even though um, Burma is listed as one of the enemies of the Internet. Yeah. um, Actually, the improvement of the situation regarding uh, press freedom and online freedom is amazing in Burma. So we can... It's it's always good to not talk about the really sad and awful situation, but yes, thank you for bringing that uh, in some countries with no violence, uh, freedom could improve, and when uh, you, you mentioned the case of Burma, uh, there's no more journalists in jail in Burma. There's no more prior censorship uh, system for the press in Burma, and uh, we hope this, uh, in this spring, uh, this uh, freedom spring, will uh, continue to improve the general situation in Burma. There are still many challenges and many difficulties, but uh, things to, things to, seems to be a very uh, going in the good direction. And uh, I, I thank you for coming back. It's been a pleasure. And everyone, this is uh, an important group, and they've done great work in, in terms of highlighting um, global attempts at um, Internet censorship. And so definitely go to their website, check it out. If you're a blogger, 
particularly if you're a blogger outside the United States, you should take a, take a look because um, it, it, your life could be on the line. This is Bennett Kelly with Internet Law Center. I'm here from the heart of Silicon Beach in Santa Monica. Good luck with your brackets. May the best team win. And, and uh, we'll see you next week right here on Cyber Law and Business Report. This has been a presentation of WebmasterRadio.fm, the world's largest business-to-business radio and podcast network. We welcome you to sample past episodes of this program, as well as our complete library of programs, on demand or on the air via our 24-7 live audio stream at www.WebmasterRadio.fm. The opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of WebmasterRadio.fm's management or sponsors. Any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of WebmasterRadio.fm is prohibited. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.